Hey everybody, what's up? This is Joseph Coyne and welcome to the ACA Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the ACA Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Coyne. This is episode 37. Thank you for listening. Appreciate all the comments we get about the ACA Podcast. I've been getting LinkedIn messages, I've been getting Facebook messages, I've been getting Instagram messages. People have been telling me it's uh, it's great. Um, of course, we can always improve those. So if you have any ideas about who should be on, what should be going on, how we can improve it, please let us know. Uh, I've got to thank our sponsors, Valve Performance. We're really lucky to partner with, with Valve, uh, make some great products, Nordboard, Groin Bar, Human Track. They've also got four steps, which is uh, a wonderful dual force plate system. So if you're in the market for any of those products, please reach out to them. Info at Valve Performance, ValPerformance.com. Even if you're interested in them, check out the website. If you're not in the market, look, just let them know you appreciate uh, them supporting us here at the ASCA. It'd be really, really uh, great for us. And maybe you see them at a conference, something like that. But go up to them and, and make yourself known. It'll be well with your time. Anyway, today we've got Associate Professor Justin Keogh. Uh, Justin, he's, a, he's at Bond University, he coordinates the Master of Sports Science program which is actually on hold for a little bit but he also helps out with the undergrad degree, he has taught in biomechanics, motor control, performance analysis, uh, his primary research interests are actually really interesting, um, strongman, powerlifting, uh, the transfer of strength conditioning as well as skill based training to sporting performance. Uh, he's got stuff going on all over the show, he's got a wealth of publications out there, you need to check him out on ResearchGate, he's the real deal. Anyway, today we talk uh, ratio of his, ratios of eccentric to concentric work, posterior chain and fascicle lengths, sled sprinting, needs analysis for strength and conditioning coaches based off what's actually happening in the game, not what might be their physical needs analysis, and KPIs from the game. And then to top it off, we also talk motor control theories and applications. So without giving too much away, let's get into it. We're on with Professor Justin Keogh from Bond University, and uh, I'd like everyone to make him welcome. Justin, thank you for taking the time to, uh, to speak with us all today. Thanks, Joseph. Pleasure to be involved, mate. Mate, no, it's, it's great to have you on board. Um, quickly, I, I really like this, these sort of origin stories, like how and why did it all begin, your interest in strength and conditioning? Um, where did you start? How did it all, what was the big bang? How did it all kick off? Yeah, God, I suppose go back to, to childhood perhaps. Like I grew up um, in a North Queensland town called Mackay, about a thousand K north of Brisbane, where we had two TV channels to watch. Uh, lived about 20K at a town, loved playing sport. There was just um, two other houses we could actually see. So um, Bush and Canefield around us, so we're always outside playing. Um, also, was always interested in sort of maths and science. Wondered how those careers could actually, or interests, sort of really take shape. And sort of finishing high school in '91, um, that side of things was just starting to sort of increase in Australia. Um, so yeah, did a health science degree at Griffith University, uh, honours uh, then at Southern Cross with Greg Wilson, and then back to a PhD at Griffith um, a couple of years after that. So. Always really interested in, I suppose, the resistance training side of thing, which again was a slightly different flavor than most universities were sort of going through in the early 90s. Um, and also got drawn, particularly towards the end of my undergrad degree, 
into sort of the measures of resistance training and then started to realize that biomechanics was was probably the science um, of most interest to me, particularly around the measurement of sort of things like force, power, velocity, EMG and those sort of measures. So um, that's, I suppose, a snapshot of some of the early stage, um, but also made a... I suppose a contented, um, a concerned effort to sort of get some prac experience as I went along. So, did some volunteer SNC work uh, during my undergrad program. Worked in a gym a bit part time, um, and I think for students interested in going to those pathways, don't get to the end of the degree and then start to think about doing that because uh, there's so many students now vying for those jobs. Get some experience as you as you're actually in the degree. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, mate, I know after your PhD, you might have spent some time in New Zealand. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, mate, your hometown. Um, almost 10 years, it ended up being at uh, Auckland University of Technology. Uh, that was a great experience, great place to, I suppose, learn a lot more of, I suppose, what's got me to where I am today and where I want to get to in the future. Uh, so some really good mentors um, there assisted me. And um, I think the program was just set up around sports, sports science. Uh, was really was great to see as well. Cool, cool. And did you come straight back from, from New Zealand to Bond University? Is that correct? Yeah. So, um, yeah, after those nine, ten years there, um, went straight back to Bond. So I've been here for almost seven. Um, so, yeah, I've... I've been in academia since 2000 and what is that? 2002 in a full-time capacity and I've only been at two universities. So not necessarily normal in that regard. Some people seem to bounce around a bit um, in academia. I suppose it's a little bit like high professional sport. You don't always um, stick around too long at one place, but um, yeah, both AUT and, and Bond have been pretty good to me. Yeah, great, great. And t tell us about what you're doing at Bond right now. Yeah, we've got a range of things. We've got, um, at the moment, um, an undergrad program, Bachelor of Exercise and Sports Science, um, as well as a Master of Sports Science program that keep me pretty busy. Um, a whole host of PhD students across different areas of sports science uh, and also sort of helping the students get more of that um, strength conditioning experience through the ASCA Level 1 courses and encouraging them to to work part-time with some of our um sports that use the high performance training center here um either externally or through the bond sport program yeah cool cool and for any um any people listening the bond programs the undergrad programs and especially at masters of sports science i really encourage you to check them out and uh, and if you are interested in doing some further education definitely you couldn't go wrong there um mate let's yeah just quickly with that unf like unfortunately but um hopefully move further ahead our masters has been uh temporarily suspended for a new intake next year um the university won a few more uh, bums on seats so nice promotion for it but um yeah we had eight students start this year they want a little bit more closer to 12 so we're looking at um going back to the drawing board a little bit getting some stakeholder feedback and just look at where I suppose the the industry is going 
to make sure that we can hopefully cater for students with a strength and conditioning, but also a sport science and sport analytics uh, sort of interest into the program. So we're, we're trying to do a bit of both at the moment, but we think there's particularly um, at both ends some some pretty important changes that we, we can make. So watch this space, hopefully for a new intake starting in 2020. So any of you guys in perhaps uh, second year university, um, that'll be perfect for you uh, in 2020. Yeah, cool, cool. What's that space? Definitely, definitely. Mate, um, so uh, let's get stuck into this. I know you've got a really heavy interest in things like strongman training, kettlebells, powerlifting. Yep. Um, and I, uh, two examples. One, um, this is a little shameless plug here. We, I've got a strongman course myself and Brad McGregor, who runs the online ASCA level one. So, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. So, so part of a lot of that is based on some of the research you did. Um, I remember yep. picking it up uh, back back in I can't remember when I sort of created that, but it was a lot of strongman stuff that you'd looked at. Um, things like the the physical characteristics, the injury epidemiology. Um, and just a, as another insight into Justin's work, um, when I was in China working with the weightlifting team, I actually used a lot. He wrote a chapter for the IOC's uh, injury epidemiology uh, consensus. I can't remember the correct name of it, and I'm sure you can enlighten yep. me. Um, that was how I used to compare, hey, are these guys injured more or less than than what's been reported in the literature? And, and a lot of this is, is Justin's uh, forte and his specialty. So, mate... Tell us about this interest. Tell us about the sort of application of these, I guess you could call them sports, powerlifting and strongman, how you apply yep. that traditional strength conditioning uh, practice. Yeah, well, I think um, every strength conditioning coach comes from some sort of, like a lot of us come from some sort of strength sport. Um, again, not being an American, it seems like the Olympic lifting or just weightlifting in general is a big part of their SNC. A lot of their strength coaches come through a pretty good sort of coaching um, and co competition sort of um, background in those um, those colleges. Uh, I started some powerlifting in my honours degree. Had Greg Wilson as uh, my honours supervisor, and He'd been successful at world um, IPF champs in terms of silver and bronze medals there. Um, so got into that. Uh, Dan Baker was a great um, sort of um, assistance with that as well as a coach at UQ's powerlifting club at the time. Did that on and off for some time over maybe 10 years. Um, played a bit of footy in between. And then when I got to Auckland, um, competed for a few years, got a rib injury. Um, did a bit of bench press only comps and then one of the guys in the gym started suggesting that we train some strongman. Before I knew it, I'd competed for almost, I think, 10 years in that sport and um, tried to get some uh, research happening as well. So did some small projects um, on my own and then was lucky to come across um, Paul Winwood. He did a master's and a PhD with me. Um, so Winwood is on... God, must be about eight publications now as the lead author. Uh, he also did uh, an updated injury epidemiology paper similar to that IOC book you spoke about with me. And um, we're now co-supervising a um, new PhD student here at Bond, uh, Ben Hindle, who's looking at strongman a bit more from a performance perspective. And we've got a really good link um, here on the coast with Coco's gym up at Mullandina. And um, we'll be accessing a lot of their developmental and um, 
Australian elite athletes in terms of um, some studies we're looking to start next year. Yeah, cool, cool. So, so mate, tell us, uh, give us a rundown on, on what we can actually use from from some of that research. Like, what's some stuff the, the listeners? Yeah, well, um, so Paul's um, master's and PhD looked at probably more the strength conditioning application. So did a few studies that used uh, some survey, um, some online surveys, look at training practices of strong man, how strength conditioning coaches are utilizing it, injury epidemiology, as you said. Uh, we've now got into some tapering for strong men as well. Um, and another PhD student I was involved with, Hayden Pritchard, who's been a um, New Zealand um, international powerlifter. He's been involved in some of these, um, plus also his own awesome work in uh, strength sports tapering as a part of his PhD. Um, so, yeah, we've tried to, I suppose, look at some exercises, how they might be useful. To me, I think, Sleds and prowlers, um, which are a sort of ways to train perhaps the classical truck pull or the arm over arm truck pull are, are great training tools to use with thick ropes. Um, the heavy work there, it's predominantly concentric. So while that is a plus and a minus, you can definitely see applications for heavy sled work. A range of the rugby super teams are starting to use it more and more. Um, so that heavy concentric work is quite easy to recover from um, Daniel West from the UK did a great study probably three or four years ago with the reverse sled drag um, did a pretty intense session with these individuals I think um, from memory the blood lactate response was over 10 millimoles they had big reductions from pre to post and vertical jump height but three or four hours later their jump height returned to, to baseline and there was no creatine kinase response at all so um, these heavy sled exercises, you've got JP Marin's group um, pushing that envelope in terms of how heavy sled pulls can be to increase sprint performance. So to my sort of um, view, anything from regular sprinting to lightly loaded sleds that athletic coaches have typically done, and I'm sure your work in China have used a few, um, up to sort of close to body weight sprints, and then even these super maximal, perhaps twice as twice body weight sort of heavy sled pushes, um, I think can be really cool uh, components for a lot of our running athletes. Um, outside of that, we looked at something like the tire flip and the farmer's walk, which I think have got some applications as well. But I think the big thing is a lot of the research we've done and some of the other researchers as well, it's just about setting sort of a scientific uh, comparison between different exercises like Paul again did three different exercise comparisons in his PhD um, Lloyd Reynolds who's a ex-world strongest man competitor in the UK um, I've done a little bit of stuff with him we've just had a paper published of him and Jason Lake uh, looking at two different diameters of logs compared to a barbell in the push press so all these studies are now starting to provide some information that strength conditioning coaches can look at and then start to see, all right, where might we use um, these exercises in practice and why they might be beneficial. Um, Stuart McGill in his seminal paper in 2009 in JCR, again, had some awesome data on three athletes around the spinal loads. So, um, and that injury epidemiology work we've done whereby 
the injury rates are perhaps twice as high in strongman um, exercises as traditional exercises in the gym are still something to consider. But again, when we look at the rate of injuries we have in our sports, they are much higher than they actually are in the weights room. So with good coaching um, and looking at the reasons that you might do some of these exercises, I think the astute strength coach can definitely get some things out of um, these training approaches. And perhaps the final aspect to consider is, again, that trunk stability and the grip strength um, adaptations as well. For sports that require that, I think um, a range of strongman exercises give you lots of variety and progressions uh, to move into that area in terms of a bit more functionality uh, and transfer to the sport. But... Um, also a lot more, I think, excitement for the athletes. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Mate, there's, there's a heap of good points, and I'm going to plug you on a couple of those. Um, yeah. Definitely the most recent one, the, the trunk strength and the grip, uh, those would be big pluses, right, from doing strong yep. training. Um, is there, what, what would be your preferred exercises to, to promote those? Preferred strongman exercises. Yeah, well, I've always like as a, a strongman athlete, my favourite event was probably always the farmers walk and the the truck pull. So, um, both of those required a ridiculous amount of grip strength. Um, farmers required a reasonable amount of trunk stability, but I think for athletes. Um, while those exercises great, the single arm farmer's carry, or what's often called the suitcase carry, I think is an awesome exercise as well. Um, so just walking up and down a gym or perhaps doing lunges or other exercises with a load in just one side of the body where it's pulling you laterally, that's an awesome sort of um, anti-lateral flexion sort of exercise that I think trains the muscles much easier to progress and more exciting than like a side plank, which I think every athlete gets bored with pretty darn quickly. Um, the yoke walk has some huge compression forces through the spine. So again, you need to be careful. But I think if we look at some athletes that are going to experience huge compression forces. So again, um, if we think of something like uh, every Kiwi's favorite sport, rugby, you look at the, the tight five, particularly the front rows in a scrum what those compression forces going through the spine are. I would think something like a, um, a yoke walk, if done correctly with a focus on maintaining that lumbar pelvic position um, in all directions rather than loading up as much weight and trying to get it to the end as quickly as possible as in a strongman comp, again, could be a great way to, to load that. And just any other sort of carry exercise like walking at a, at a pace while holding heavy awkward objects is an awesome way to i think train the the trunk lumbar pelvic sort of um area in relation to all those um semi-random perturbations that you experience um during movement and, and competition mm, cool cool I, i'm personal experience i'm going to throw one out here i remember doing some uh, stone carries and not just like trunk and things like that. but it was actually really really hard to breathe with the thing on my chest after a while yeah because i'm struggling for breath as it is like my heart rate's up and then i've got this thing on my on my chest that's compressed compressing my chest and i was like wow this is a this is a whole nother stimulus i hadn't thought of this before um, yeah um again when i did compete in new zealand we um matt rossiter who ran new zealand's strongest man had 
found in a workplace years ago, or he was asked to move it if he could, this 160 kilogram anvil. Um, so he's amazingly strong, so he picked it up, no worries. But um, yeah, he had an event where we had to pick that up off a short box, um, carry that on our chest for as far as possible. Oh, wow. So when you've got a 160 kilo metal anvil on your chest, you're exactly right. Breathing is almost impossible. Yeah. That weight is pulling you forward and um, trying to move and not get crumpled by that load is is crazy hard. So um, New Zealand record was just over 100 metres with a turn every 25 metres. And again, when you finished that event, you're just completely taxed in in every way you can pretty much think about. So while most athletes aren't going to have a 160 kilogram um, anvil to play with, sticking a few 20 kilo plates together, um, either with chain or a, or a little bit of the end part of a bar through the middle, holding that in some way on the chest, um, kettlebells overhead, um, any sort of carry, perhaps again with a sled or um, attached in certain positions as well, can just develop that functional sort of um, transfer to a lot of sports. But also, if we think of some of my colleagues here at Bond, um, Rob Orr in that sort of TSAC space, you think of all these sort of paramilitary um, operators and the sort of activities they have to do quite commonly again they're they're carrying heavy backpacks they're they're pulling people out of um dangerous situations so again those loaded carries um i think are awesome and i even just saw something on twitter this morning um my twitter profile is dr strength for life but there's someone else in the uk called strength for life and they had a um a video of some drill they're doing of some older clients where they pick up a, um, a weighted bag off um, an elevated platform, put it on their shoulder as if like they're carrying a baby on the shoulder, walking 10 metres or so, putting it down, picking it up and, and completing that process. So you can even start to see applications of this for um, non-athletic and sort of older populations as well. Mm, for sure, for sure. Like farmers walk is pretty much nothing more than a couple of heavy bags of groceries or a suitcase in each hand. Yep, you bet, you bet. And look, you, you've mentioned the application not just to – everybody always thinks like strongman is like those combat sports, really applicable to the combat sports, and it is. Um, yep. Then you just started talking about application for, say, sedentary populations or elderly populations. Yep. Uh, what what about other sports like th with the grip and trunk uh, requirements? Yep. Is, there, is there application for things like say racket sports like tennis that have a grip? Yeah, I've um like I've never gone there, and never worked with those sports before. But again, just from a personal perspective, um, when I was in New Zealand, I had um, an opportunity to work in a couple of sports there. Um, Paralympic was an awesome opportunity with powerlifting, but also worked with New Zealand golf for many years. Um, a little bit of biomechanics plus a lot of um, strength and conditioning work in Auckland. And um, almost all the athletes we had were sort of adolescent athletes who were coming through that high-performance amateur program, uh, wanting to go onto the, the different world tours. And um, obviously a lot of these golfers, um, and many of them actually came from different Asian countries where it's very expensive to play golf. So their families relocated to New Zealand where they could practice 20 hours per, per week plus on the golf course, um, a lot of these athletes didn't have perhaps a well-rounded athletic development. They just love playing golf. So 
all those asymmetries that you start to develop um, around the trunk and hips were definitely present then. But again, something like a side plank or a front plank weren't overly exciting. They're not as easy to progressively overload. So I had a range of these 15-year-old athletes after a few months of training um, doing those suitcase carries as an example. So they'd look at themselves in a mirror initially. Uh, they'd walk towards that maybe 20 meters with a dumbbell in one hand. And my cue was for them to walk um, as normally as possible um, in that sort of position with that dumbbell trying to pull them, push their hips to the side and their, their trunk in the other direction. So even little things of like that with a, a sport where you don't typically have a, tra a large tradition of resistance training. But um, I think that sort of opportunity uh, to incorporate that even at that sort of level was something the athletes actually enjoyed doing much more than getting down on the side. And if they did a lateral plank on their forearm, again, after 30 seconds, many of them complained that it hurt their shoulders sure, before sure, their obliques sure. actually started like burning. Sure, 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 sure. Um, so that'd be an example perhaps in a, in a non-traditional power sport. But again, at the end of the day, if you can whack a drive 300 yards, um, that's helping your performance. And every time you do that, that's a bit of stress going through the lumbar spine. The next thing that you brought up was sleds and a whole heap of heavy sleds. Uh, and a lot of the research that's been done there uh, recently, JB Moran was someone you mentioned. Uh, what, what's yep. your take on that as a, as a um, like application to sprints and you talked about sled pulls, which is like resisted sprinting with a sled behind you. Um, yeah. What, what's your take on all this research? What's your, what's your yeah. Story? Like, um, I suppose when you think of resisted sleds um, and using that as a tool to improve sprinting performance, particularly acceleration phase, I've always wondered why it hasn't been more popular. Um, if we make an analogy for something like squatting and vertical jumping, we see profound increases in vertical jump performance, particularly in our early resistance trained athletes from just getting them stronger in a squatting motion. There is no velocity specificity of that action. It changes the movement pattern to some extent as well. Um, it's more of a, I suppose, a simultaneous push than a sequential activation as in jumping. Um, but traditionally, sprint coaches have always been very reluctant to put much load on a sled beyond maybe 10% in that it might change the running mechanics. Um, I suppose from a motor learning perspective, the amount of sprinting a top sprinter has ever performed is a huge amount of steps. Whereas the number of steps they might do off a heavy sled is, is going to be pretty small compared to that. So while it definitely makes some acute changes in technique, like larger contact times, um, more forward inclination of the trunk, etc., that's unlikely to be seen once they go back to un um, unresisted. So I think there is potential, and JB Marin's group is sort of demonstrating that in um, some football type athletes. So it'll be interesting if sprint coaches will start gravitating that direction to a little bit as well. Um, and again, maybe during competitive phase of their training, when it's difficult for your athletes to get into the gym and do their squats, their cleans, um, their pliers as they like to do in the off season, maybe they can incorporate a, a heavier concentric sort of sled day to maintain some of that volume. The rugby sort of sports are definitely incorporating that to some extent. Um, but I think um, particularly in those acceleration sports where there is contact, um, 
let's characterize that contact. A big guy or, or female athlete is running into, in essence, a brick wall of opponents. They want to continue to go through that brick wall and drag those defenders meters or even get through and make a break. Um, to me, some of those resisted sprinting tools at different ends of that force, velocity, power spectrum make a lot of sense in those developmental characteristics. So um, if we take away that eccentric loading, which again is important, but you might need to minimize it at some times. The other difference is the spinal loading. We know squats and cleans and deadlifts are great for the sprinting, etc., development, but they incur a pretty high lumbar spine load as well. These heavy sort of sled prowler exercises, that loading is significantly reduced. So again, that frequency of training at different times of the year can be increased or maintained with some sleds. I think at similar adaptations, perhaps even better. Again, the research isn't quite there yet. But I think, again, the astute coach can look at those opportunities, um, these, uh, these sort of challenges, and see where they might use sleds from pretty light, like not much more than the sled itself, up to something where pushing it five metres might take 10 seconds. Mm. Mm. So to train those different ends of the force, velocity, power spectrum, as we typically do in our vertically loaded squat and um weightlifting derivatives yeah mate um there's uh yeah i i i'm i'm pretty pragmatic and i, I agree with a lot of what you said there like i've always i've always wondered about that 10 percent rule when i was going well that's a pretty arbitrary number isn't it and then also if, if a guy's a really yeah. good athlete if they do one or two sets of sled uh sled sprints with a slightly heavier load say at 15 percent or 20 percent um that would have to be a terrible athlete if it completely ruined their running mechanics after that. And that's the other um, thing. When we go back to sort of motor control learning principles, um, that same principle, it's called self-organization. Your body ultimately moves in a way that feels most comfortable for it in addition to the coaching and the environment that you've been shaped in. Mm -hmm. So for someone, for the elite athletes that we tend to work with, they've done thousands of repetitions of those fundamental movements. So it's that same reason why if you've got an athlete that you want to change their running technique, like you are actually deliberately trying to change their running technique because they've had an injury or whatever, how hard is that? It's yeah. so hard. So when we actually try to change technique or a golf coach tries to change the swing mechanics, that process can take months of very concentrated effort. So the thought that we're really going to make any pronounced chronic change to a sprinter's technique by having them do a couple sets of heavier sprints than 10% of body weight seems really, to my mind, very, very unlikely. Sure. So, sure. yeah. Mate, no, no, I, I, I definitely identify with that, definitely. Um, the, uh, yeah, and, and all those loads, all those, those contact sports, like that's a momentum game. Um, and even ch deliberately changing that running technique, like uh, adjusting between a waist harness versus a shoulder harness can, yep. can change sort of projection angles and acceleration and that sort of thing. Um, which, which and to a point for the athlete, again, say something like rugby who runs a little bit vertically, um, using quite a lot of sled work, again, particularly the, the chest mount, um, you can't pull a load well, particularly chest position if you're upright, it's going to get them more horizontal. They'll hopefully become more confident in that more horizontal position. 
And again, if it's a ruck and maul situation in rugby or a tackle situation, um, that's a more optimal position to be in. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. So you might actually, if you use it enough, sort of um, help reinforce that position. And again, just like so many team sport athletes, we see those who change direction well intuitively get into that sort of position where they change their center of mass position, they change their foot contact position, that their weight is moving in that direction that they want to move in. And then they can apply force um, to the ground to assist in that. But for those athletes that don't move as well, they almost look like they're, I sort of use an analogy of um, tap dancing on the spot. Their feet are moving, but they're not applying force in an effective direction. So they pretty much remain stationary before they then start moving. So when you look at some of these really agile athletes, you just see those biomechanical um, concepts applied so perfectly, but again, they almost do it in a instinctual manner. Some of these athletes. Mm, mm. Yep. Definitely. Definitely. Um, I always think of like a young Benji Marshall uh, and his, his change of direction, that sort of thing. Yep. Um, and the, the forces he had put out and obviously he's slowed down a little bit now with age, but uh, <laughs> come on the scene, it was, it was, it was brilliant, you know what I mean? In and again, of- something like touch footy where he sort of played a lot growing up as well is a great, um, in some of this motor learning skill act sort of um, literature, they refer to it as a um, donor sport. Okay. Um, so if you're transitioning from one sport to another, what are some of the, the movement, but also decision-making and tactical sort of um, benefits you might receive from going to one sport to another? Um, touch football would seem to be a great... Um, donor sport for obviously rugby league but you look at rugby sevens and how many particularly of these um female athletes are now coming through with um some sort of pedigree in in sevens footy mm. um in in sorry in touch footy like that spatial awareness passing evasion um you then teach them how to tackle and take contact and get them stronger that's a an awesome athlete to put on the on the sevens field yeah yeah, mate. I, yeah, definitely. You're speaking the truth now, Justin. You really are. Um, <laughs> we've, we've. It reminds me of also Brazilian, uh, like the small-sided Brazilian soccer, the football, whatever yep. they call it, foosball. Um, yeah. And how how they think that's. Yeah, there actually has been a paper out recently around um, futsal as a donor yep. sport for um, for soccer, yep. and um, even another one I saw recently about parkour as a, a general movement sport for so many other sports. Yeah. Um, and um, if we go back to last year's ACA conference where Calvin Giles had a, a keynote presentation, one of the big things he sort of was, um, he mentioned he he would love to see gymnastics getting back into sort of um, school P as a big part of, of physical development literacy. Um, parkour's probably got that and perhaps even more to a point to offer. Um, but I suppose it's just trying to figure out the um, developmental and that injury risk perspective of, of where that can fit in. But um, the athletes that excel in a lot of sports just just move well. So um, we've seen some of those parkour twins on Ninja Warrior and some of the stuff that they do. So, um, so again, Ninja Warrior seems to be a sport a bit like Strongman and Mixed Martial Arts where athletes are coming to from a whole variety of different backgrounds and excelling in, in different ways. Yeah, sure, sure. 
Hey, Justin, I, you mentioned also some tapering practices, like the stuff you'd studied in strongman and powerlifting, their the tapering practices. What, what, what were those? Like what were their sort of characteristics of tapering? And then what can we take from them for other sports? Like what would you recommend for a, for a football coach or for a, uh, for a tennis coach or a track and Yeah, field? well, again, I have to give a bit of um, – Bit of credit back to Hayden Pritchard here, the um, recent PhD grad. He had the first of his papers, um, like it was just a, a bit of a narrative review in Strength Conditioning Journal a few years ago around um, tapering practices for muscular strength. And up to that point, there actually was pretty limited information um, around how strength athletes taper for sports compared to our endurance athletes where there's been a huge amount of literature on there. But um I suppose from that review plus some of the work that he's now done and he's got, I think his last paper is just um, resubmitted to a journal recently, but um, you can have some pretty pronounced um, drops in, in volume um, well over 50%. I think the biggest group was a 70% reduction, but the critical thing is with these tapers um, and these might be like a week out from the competition or even a touch longer. Um, that maintaining the intensity of those um, those key exercises. So again, for the powerlifter, it's the bench, the squat, and the deadlift. Those exercises are maintained at pretty much the same intensities they were trained or even slightly above leading into the competition. But there's a massive reduction in volume, uh, particularly of all those extra additional um, assistance exercises. So um, I think the big thing we can then take out of that if we then start to look at your sort of Olympic sports, again, like your sprinters um, who might be competing in your comms, your world champs and your Olympics, um, where most of the additional training they do is in the gym, you could probably look at some pretty similar applications to those athletes. The big question, I suppose, still is how could we apply this to our sort of team sport athletes who compete on a weekly basis in sort of our football codes? Um, in essence, what is that sort of periodization structure where they get like that mini taper at the end of the week, which I think a lot of coaches do pretty well with um, a little bit more emphasis on some of the power, low um, duration activities at the end of the week, um, almost like a dynamic effort um, conjugate sort of system. Um, but yeah, I think um, we'll see some interesting research in the next five or 10 years around periodization and tapering for, um, the football type code athletes or netball where they compete um, for a big chunk of the year. Mm, mm, cool. Cool. So, um, so probably the take home messages again for those strength sport athletes, um, you can have some big reductions in, in volume, um, but keep that intensity pretty much at the same volume uh, at the same intensity uh, in that week to two weeks leading up into those, those big competitions that you want to be at your optimal level of performance uh, in terms of our strongman stuff, it does seem that the athletes have some degree of variation in, in how they do that, which again probably reflects the sort of the, the new nature of the sport and the almost complete lack of science into how to do that. Um, so I think some more studies which actually perhaps directly manipulate that sort of taper um, on a simulated competition sort of performance will be really interesting to sort of get some some more insight into again the the actual length and that optimal sort of um change in volume and intensity within those tapers mm, 
Right on, right on. So, but um, yeah, definitely check out Hayden Pritchard's work. Um, he's on ResearchGate, which is um, perhaps one of the tips I'll give other strength coaches. Get yourself on ResearchGate and Twitter. Um, great ways to stay um, current with a lot of the research that's happening. You betcha, you betcha. Hey, so uh, the other thing that powerlifting has kind of given uh, S&C or, or really, I'm thinking Westside here, is really sort yep. of developed an appreciation of an s and Perhaps it was there already before, but it's the amount of posterior chain work uh, yep. that strength, strength and conditioning coaches might do. Now, you had a brilliant, I remember this uh, presentation in 2014, actually, at the ASA conference. You had a brilliant presentation on different posterior chain exercises and their sort of relation to athletic performance and injury. Um, yep. Mate, give us a give us a recap on that. What have has your views? First of all, tell us what you think about it now. Would be really interesting. Sort yep. of for yeah, yeah. Um, it'd be interesting if I went back and actually listened. Uh, like a obviously at the ASK conference, they record those lectures. You can um, listen to them. It'd probably be interesting for me to go back and actually do that. Um, I think one of the things which I've benefited in that meantime is um, I've had some collaborations with uh, Tony Shield and Dave Opar, who I think anyone in uh, any sport that has anything to do with hamstrings would know those names around the development of a Nord board. So um, I think um, my general thoughts are probably still pretty similar in regards to a lot of sports probably still don't pay enough attention to um, that posterior chain. Um, both the gluteals and the hamstring musculature um, up into the erectors, that um, we need to perhaps prioritise a little bit more. But again, because a lot of those exercises have some pretty substantial sort of spinal loads, we need to be careful. I think strongman, again, those carries, um, doing any sort of stone-type lift is a ridiculously sort of intense um, posterior chain like gluteal activation towards the end of the range so probably the big thing i suppose that still get out of that is how do we cha- how do we train the posterior chain muscles to produce force throughout the entire range of motion whereas a lot of our traditional squatting type movements leg press that load across all those agonistic muscles but including the glutes perhaps even more so really seems to drop off towards the end of the range um because of that um, ascending strength curve. So doing all those sort of exercises with a load in front of you, be it a goblet squat, a zercher squat, um, some other heavy object, um, even doing it for Swiss ball partially filled with water is an amazing sort of exercise as well. So um, the Nordic, I think, again, is a great um, exercise in terms of the evidence base for reducing hamstring injuries, and there's some really strong evidence about that. It's not necessarily the only exercise that should be included, but it's the exercise where the evidence base is. Probably the one thing, one of the biggest things that has emerged since then from from David and Tony's work is how some of these exercises, be it a heavy eccentric exercise like the Nordic or exercises at long muscle length such as the 45-degree hip extension, which again, I use a lot of my own training now, can actually increase the fascicle length of some of these hamstring muscles. Um, why is, why is that important? The fascicle length, the longer it is, is, um, has been found to be, um, related to a reduced risk of injury to those hamstrings as well. So I think I just saw a paper that that same concept was found in some of the calf musculature as well. So if we can start to incorporate 
again, I'm almost saying the opposite to what I was saying before with the sleds. Um, if we can do some eccentric work for different muscles that suffer these sort of um, injuries, or also some work at long muscle lengths and perhaps a combination of both, if we can develop those longer fascicles and that eccentric strength, um, I think those host of posterior, particularly hamstring injuries, but perhaps also some of the gastroc and um, soleus Achilles type injuries we see in running athletes may be able to be prevented by that uh, simultaneous eccentric strength and fascicle strength development, uh, fascicle length development simultaneously. Mm, so sorry. that's probably the biggest, um, I suppose, change in, in that space that I've seen in, in those four years. And David and um, Tony are doing some awesome work in, in that space with their host of collaborators and um, PhD master students. Fascicle mm, mm, length. Ah, yes, that was a question I had. So the question is now, We've talked about, say, concentric only loading with the sleds and that sort of thing. We've talked about this eccentric loading. It's really beneficial for the fascial length and the eccentric strength. How do you, how would you intertwine those together for an S&C coach? Like how would you put them together? Would yeah. it be closer to competition? You take away some of the eccentric stuff and, and the earlier in the season you prioritise the eccentric stuff? Like what, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, that's a great practical question. And I think um, it's something strength coaches are obviously trying to I suppose, way up and grapple with the best way to do it. I think something like that could work pretty well. Um, the challenge is, I suppose, I suppose similar to where some of the research that some um, load monitoring has been doing around, um, and again, David and Tony have been involved in some of this, how much high-speed running is actually protective versus um, injury causative in terms of our, our sprinting type uh, team sport athletes. So... I suppose some research to figure out what degree of loading uh, of that, how much eccentric loading is required to maintain those adaptations. Um, so it's almost like those horrible infomercials we see all the time. Like if you're five minute ab routine, how little eccentric loading can you actually um, get away with in season to maintain those adaptations you've, you've developed in the off season. The challenge, though, with that process will still be that we know some of the training loads can actually be higher across the board in the preseason phase. So, again, if you've got athletes doing quite a bit of running, uh, change of direction work on the pitch, if you're adding in quite a lot of eccentric hamstring strength stuff, um, A, they're not going to be moving too well in some of those drills, and B, there actually might be a, a short-term increase of that risk of injury as they adapt to the sort of DOMs that they're likely to experience. So I think um, some sort of pyramid type progressive structure where you gradually build up that eccentric gym loading um, in the first two or three, four weeks of preseason. Um, and if possible, even have them do a little bit of that uh, when they're not with the club, um, then maintain some pretty good loading throughout those preseason and then look at what that, um, how best to, to, to keep that loading sufficient but not too high in terms of recovery during the in-season phase. So, and the other challenge, obviously, is you've got some 18-year-old kids, you've got some 25-season veterans, and then you've got some of your, your older athletes. Like, again, you mentioned Benji Marshall recently or someone like, um, obviously, a JT that we've just had his last game. Um, how do you manage those athletes differently to a, an 18-year-old who's raring to go but doesn't have that training history. So the team sport um, strength coach 
has a lot of uh, intricacies involved in that planning. So, and unfortunately, research isn't really probably ever going to be able to answer that question specifically. So, a bit of trial and error with some educated um, guesswork, I think, is is what we need to do there. But um, they're a little bit on the side of conservative to start with in terms of what loading they can tolerate. Um, and again, listen and talk to your athletes. Sure, sure. So, so that's the eccentric. That's the eccentric part of things. What yep. about the concentric part of things? Would it be the same process? Yeah, well, I think you that? can actually recover from that really quickly. Like, um, again, just as a, a personal anecdote, which um, as a researcher doesn't always um, hold true, but you go back to that um, that Daniel West study where these athletes had done that really heavy reverse sled drag session, but had recovered their um, vertical jump performance with no um, creatine kinase response three or four hours post. Um, when I was training in New Zealand for uh, New Zealand's Strongest Man, we'd have like a three-hour training session on a Saturday. You'd be absolutely wrecked. You'd basically go home, eat a big meal, and pretty much fall asleep most of the afternoon. Sunday morning, I'd wake up about six and do some moderately heavy sled drags, um, three different positions back to back, one sort of standing vertically with the sled behind me, sort of pouring the ground, pretty much hip extension only. I then do the, so that might go for about a 30 second sort of um, duration over maybe 30 meters or something. Reverse sled drag um, straight back to where I came from and then leaned forward into like a sprint style pull and try and pull it as fast as possible. So there was still some reasonable load on there. I'd work up to five sets of those exercises in the space of a couple of weeks with like a minute rest between. Um, and even though I wasn't the strongest or the biggest um, strongman in New Zealand, any of those events that went past 30 seconds, um, I found that that conditioning really helped me maintain my force output and speed of movement over those longer events. But yeah, I recovered. Um, I was able to do that even though I was completely trashed from the day before. Um, there was no real spinal loading. And um, yeah, I felt actually after doing that, I'd feel quite fresh for the rest of the Sunday. So to a point, could some football type athletes even do that the day after a game? Mm, um, sure. I think there's potential for them to do that the day after the game or at least a day and a half post game whereby they'd have no inclination to, to step under a squat bar or, or do some cleans. Mm, mm. Did some, so again, if, if some of these athletes are only getting one sort of lower body gym session a week in season and that sort of decline in strength power hypertrophy is beginning, um, I think that's a, a pretty easy place they could add in that second session and, and maintain a lot of those gains they got pre-season. Cool. Cool. There's been some absolute gold uh, mined here, Justin. There really has. Um, I'm even thinking with the concentric stuff is, you know, you talked about a, a pyramid style with eccentric. Maybe it's a reverse yeah. pyramid for the concentric strongman stuff. Generally. Yeah, perfectly. Um, so, again, what are those training loads you can sustain in the different areas of physical development at different stages of the year? Again, it's that, that big picture question is what you need to answer first. Once you've got that plan, then you start thinking of eccentric, accentuated, or concentric. You think of a sled pull versus squats or a power clean versus a, a plyometric exercise. It's only at that point that those questions make sense once you've had the, that big picture sort of um, model, periodization model, training goals um, figured out.
Mm-hmm. And I think particularly in the YouTube age where it's so easy for young coaches to see all these awesome, amazing, specific exercises that they want to throw into a program, the question still goes back to, um, I think a lot of people have started to ask it now. It's the um, it depends answer. Mm-hmm. So is this an exercise you'd prescribe for an athlete? And the answer normally is it depends. Um, it depends on the context of the athlete, where they are in training, their injury background, where they want to go. So a deadlift is a great exercise. A sled pull is a great exercise. Um, for some people, behind neck um, sort of snatch press is a great exercise. But again, it depends on so many questions that you need answers for before you program that for a particular person. Yeah, for sure. And for how sure. you actually program it, how you coach it. And that's probably one of the other things I think um, I don't want to see lost is that art of coaching. Like the university programs are great. I've been at a uni for many years. But um, I think we, sometimes we can lose space. Um, we sort of overemphasize some of the theory side of things and we lose that sort of coaching ability, how you interact with people, how you provide cues and feedback. Um, we overcomplicate things. We give too much information. Um, we spend too long giving instructions and not let the, the beginner athlete actually attempt to solve some of these movement uh, problems they face. Hey team, I just want to take a brief break to mention Val Performance, great support of the ACA and obviously this podcast as I mentioned at the start. All their products, if you're not familiar with them, they all combine advanced sensors, real-time data visualization, analytics to help you make decisions about performance, asymmetries, injury risk. The most important thing about their products though, they're all really easy to use, fast and reliable. They've recently added four steps to their stable of products, which is hands down the best dual force plate system in the world. Valve Performance Four Sticks, they've got this reputation in elite sport, research, clinical practice. They successfully balance the combination being evidence-based, functional, easy to use. Look, they're not just for elite sport. It could be a physio practice, could be a private strength conditioning coach. It could be a school sports academy. It could be a track and field coach. You should definitely consider looking at their products. Make sure you check out ValPerformance.com or check them out on their socials. Yeah, look, this is this is a great actually. You've you've given me a layup here. It's a great segue into the next thing I want to talk about. Uh, what your topic at the ASCA, if I conference this year or 2000, uh, 2018, and by the time this is released, it might actually be past that conference. But yep. nevertheless, is on the strength conditioning coaching practice and the skill acquisition. Um, let, let's talk about the the motor control learning theory and concepts, but behind behind. This, this skill acquisition yep. and, and what SNC coaches should be thinking about first and foremost? Yeah, well, I suppose there's a whole host of theories and to encapsulate them pretty quickly, I'll just pick a few. Um, for those who want some more information, uh, there was a pretty recent ASCA podcast with um, Daniel Chalkley and David Watts as well. Can't remember what number that is, but that um, hour or so was a really good snapshot of a lot of those theories. So probably a few that I'll just cherry pick. Um, at the end of the day, as the strength coach or a sports scientist, what we're trying to do is maximize the transfer of the training that we have our athletes do to the actual competition performance of that athlete. So again, Joseph, all the work you've done if you're sprinters, it doesn't matter what they squat or power clean or deadlift. 
the only thing that matters is can they get to the end of the track faster than the other seven people on the track at the same time. Strength and power exercises can help them do that, but if it's not making them run faster or reducing their risk of injury, you've got to question what you're doing in the gym. So to me, we then have to go backwards from we want to maximize the transfer to competition. How do we do that? So we do, like I suppose, your needs analyses. You see which muscle groups are active, if they're stretch, short, and cycle, or concentric only. That's important. But probably one thing we forget, um, one of the, the, the constraints-led approach, again, um, Daniel talked about, where you've got the task, you've got the environment, and you've got the performer. Ultimately, they, those three levels of constraint all um, relate to each other through the action perception couple. So if you are going to act in a sport, you're actually going to move in a certain direction, perform a particular act. You really only do that after you perceive the need to do so. So there's some sport-specific stimulus. And again, they spoke about the newer definition of agility being um, the change of direction in relation to an unplanned sport-specific stimulus. So one thing I think we can consider um, that constraints-led approach is awesome, particularly they spoke about small-sided games, but again, how we can alter, um, say, a squat motion. So great, good strength coaches these days, and again, Westside were an awesome way to perhaps popularise it. How many versions of squats do we have now available to us to coach to our athletes? Um, so again, the bands, the chains, where you position the bar um, on the back, overhead, the front, the zercher, different loads, all these different things we can do. But this action perception couple is something I think is really interesting. So if we think of our athletes, um, our sprinting type athletes on the track, in the pool, in the BMX arena, they have to react to a stimulus to then express that force and power to accelerate off the blocks. Do we ever do anything like that in the gym? Are we training our athletes to respond to a stimulus that is similar to their game situation and improving that action perception couple in relation to that reaction and movement time? And if you think of the importance of one of your sprinters getting off the blocks fast, a 50-meter freestyler or a BMX athlete getting down the ramp first, picking that, that best line through the rest of the course and not getting taken out by the other seven athletes, are there some ways we can start to integrate some of this reaction time training with the perception, the stimuli similar to the sport. Um, and I think, again, we're starting to use that in agility training. We're starting more coaches now understanding the difference between agility and just change of direction in terms of that planned course. So can we do that more so with a whole host of activities that require our body to very rapidly produce force in relation to a stimuli that we see or, or hear mm. or even feel? Mm. Um, sure. so again, particularly if we think about um, another niche that you can start to consider as an opportunity for employment is athletes with a disability. Ultimately, get into the Paralympics, which was an awesome experience. I had in New Zealand for three years. Again, you've got an athlete who's um, got a visual or a hearing um, impairment. How they perceive the world is very different to, to, I suppose, how we typically just think of the world. So again, those athletes, um, that might even be more important than your able-bodied athletes. Yep, 100%. Justin, can you give us a practical example of what you might do with, um, say, maybe an Olympic sport or with a team sport athlete in regards to that sort of constraints-led approach to maybe that reaction and movement time? Uh, something, something you do in the yeah. gym on the field with them. 
Yeah, so I suppose with um with like BMX, we've got a PhD student, Jason Grigg, working with BMX at the moment. Um, we've looked at a, a process whereby they can do more uh, reaction time drills off the track because again, getting to the velodrome where they have the the timing light system is is not as easy as it it always is. So um, Eric Harkinson, one of the uh, sports scientists with Cycling Australia, he's developed a system where they can train that in a sort of a gym situation. And we're also looking at the potential that a range of plyometric type exercises, um, and again, for a cyclist, it might be more concentric only plyometric, if that makes sense. Um, in a way, it doesn't. But um, those sort of concentric only jumps might be done in terms of that sort of stimulus that matches a sport. So again, they rapidly turn on that lower body musculature in producing that force and power um, in relation to that sort of stimuli. So that's definitely something. And perhaps another sort of constraint-led approach example would be if we're trying to change someone's movement patterns, um, say, post-knee injury. And if we look at, say, women's sports in particular, the great evolution there is awesome to see. But unfortunately, being female increases the risk of ACL injury as well. So uh, some of the really good strength coaches are starting to alter the constraints of training, whereby they are giving the athlete perhaps a goal to work towards. Um, it can be simple. I've seen a, um, one study whereby they had athletes landing perhaps too vertically. Um, the load was going through the, the knee, the ACL, to a greater extent than they wanted. They wanted more hip flexion to attenuate those forces through the, my God, those posterior chain as well. So the simple constraint they did in this study was that they put, a, an, I think it was just an orange cone down in front of the athlete, and they asked the athlete to touch the cone when they landed. So again, if it's a relatively short cone in relation to the athlete's height, um, if you're standing, if you land very vertical, like in almost like a front squat descent position, like your weightlifters that you work with, you're never going to reach that cone. But by asking them to reach the cone, they've got to flex through the hips more. So that simple change in the constraint of the task actually helped them develop the movement pattern, which these coaches wanted to reduce that loading um, through the knee joint. So... Um, and again, Daniel Chalkley made a great sort of example, some of the stuff they did in, in hockey, some of the constraints they changed that didn't always lead to the, the movement solutions that they wanted. But often these movement solutions are great adaptations that um, are good to see, but you might have to go back and change that constraint to some extent with some of the athletes to, to get that change. Um, and the reason you do that is that then becomes a more natural movement pattern. They've developed that solution themselves they're not overthinking it or trying to take on board too many technical things at the same time so that self-organization of their body tends to be more um tends to be kept under pressure as we see in sporting situations and i think the biggest challenge we have is that semi gap that sometimes can occur after an athlete comes back from injury where they've had some good physio, sport medicine support. They can jump and land pretty well in the gym when they're focusing on that task in isolation. They can see themselves in the mirror perhaps, but then they go in onto the court, onto the field. They jump up to take that rebound or that mark. Their focus is now completely shifted to that sports task. And unfortunately, because that focus, which was on the knee mechanics in the gym, they're not able to automate that process because that's what they've continually focused on. So that transfer, like again, they look great in the gym, but that doesn't transfer to the actual field or the court. 
And that might be a factor why we see a lot of these re-injuries within that first couple of weeks when they get back to close to competition or into competition um, phase. Mm. Yeah, look, I, uh, I've got an analogy there definitely and I, I totally agree with it. But say changing somebody's sprint mechanics, you'd tell a sprinter that you, you might get it looking better over a period of like sort of a month or so. They'll look good when they're just doing reps by themselves. Then when you add a, in a reaction, like a, a clap from behind, um, yep. then it'll go back to being looking pretty not so great. And then exactly. it'll take, it'll take more time to get that good. And then when they actually go into a competition, not just competition within training, again, it'll look terrible for a while. Because again, that extra pressure, their mind starts going back to thinking about things. So that's the biggest challenge that at the end of the day, we're all about transfer. So how we can replicate aspects of that competition in training. So you're, you're perfectly right. Um, it might take you so many weeks to get that change with no pressure, but you add a little bit of pressure, they tend to go back to their preferred movement. You go to Olympic final. Wow. That change has to be rock solid to, to stay under the pressure of I've trained for four years. I've given my life to this sport. I've now got maybe 10 seconds to put that into practice. Mm, yeah, That's yeah, a yeah. lot of pressure. 100%. There's actually interesting interesting stuff on changes in sprint mechanics in the Olympic finals versus, say, diamond leagues and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I actually downloaded some material. I haven't had a chance to look at it, but the IAAF have put out some really cool biomechanic data of a whole range of track and field events. So, um, again, anyone interested in it, you might even have the link to it. There's some awesome stuff around yeah. elite athletes um, in competition. Yeah, last year's 2017 World Champs in London, they did a big, uh, I yeah. think, Carnegie uh, University, maybe yeah. a big big project with the IAAF and um, yeah, so all your sports. Yeah, so huge amounts of data. The reports are very comprehensive. i love to have a chance to actually look onto it soon, but yeah, um, coaches have time to check that out if you're interested. Yeah, 100%. I agree. I agree. Um, you mentioned also the perhaps overcoaching the the over information that that can occur and this is something that i've always seen looking at technical coaches then looking at snc coaches or even trainers the amount of talking a technical coach does compared to the amount of talking a uh um, snc or a uh trainer does it's it's like uh chalk and cheese the technical coach will sit and watch for maybe five ten minutes very little talking versus perhaps the S&C coach or the trainer feels they need to contribute every single rep. Yep. Um, tell us what your thoughts are about that. Like what's your thinking in that situation with this type of skill acquisition approach? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And even different sports in terms of the technical coaches, there seems to be differences there too. But um, I think at the end of the day, particularly for the sports that are really big in Australia, um, our athletes are pretty much they're not coached once the game starts. They're left to their own devices. We don't, outside of maybe basketball to a point, netball a little bit, the timeouts almost don't exist. So the athletes, if it's a game of rugby league, you've got 40 minutes before you talk to the coach again. They can get some messages out, but at the end of the day, these athletes have to make decisions, execute their skills as they, as they go. So I think um, the big thing... So I just go back to your question. I'm just lost train of thought there for a touch, Joseph. 
So just about the feedback we're giving yeah, athletes sorry. and whether so, um, it's too much compared to what a technical coach yep. might do or, or how, how does that impact skill acquisition? Yeah. So ultimately, we want our athletes to become robust learners that they can adapt to any situation. So you think of someone like Jonathan Thurston. He's um, probably growed, grew up as a little kid, um, had to learn to evade a whole stack of bigger kids, not to get pretty much physically killed. Um, on the fields that they played. So someone like that or a Benji Marshall over the years just developed ways to, to move into space, set up their um, teammates, etc. So, and a lot of that, like your South American soccer players, your Indian cricketers is not coached. So a lot of these athletes develop that intuitive skill, decision-making context um, just by practice. So that's self-directed learning. And I think, as you then start to coach, we start to feel we have to provide all this feedback, these great instructions. We need to impart all our knowledge. And I think it's even worse sometimes with um, younger students. We give them all this theoretical knowledge. We teach them the 10 steps of the squat and they almost feel like they have to impart that knowledge to an athlete when they're coaching. So to me, what I like to try to, one approach I've used pretty much throughout my career is I'll, um, demonstrate an exercise for someone who hasn't really seen it before, maybe give them two or three points to focus on. And I often do that while I'm performing the exercise. So I might hold the bottom of a squat or hold my trunk position before I do a bent row to highlight that position. Um, I'll let them get a chance to do the exercise very, um, maybe just 20 seconds after that demo, like after I started the demo. And then from there, I don't actually give them any feedback straight after the set or, or perhaps I'll give some during the set if I have to, but after the set, I'll often say, how did that set feel? And if they can't really give me an answer, I might be more directive. It might be, how did you feel you kept your back during that exercise? I might prescribe that answer a little bit more, but what I'm trying to get them to do is become more self-aware of their movements and I then use the feedback to facilitate that process. Um, and if I see maybe three or four errors, I hope that they might be able to come up with one of those errors themselves. And then I'll give them some perhaps prescription or a cue or an analogy, which will help them correct that. Whereas if I start, um, and one thing I must admit, I'm not a great coacher of of the weightlifting events. I've never had the flexibility to do them well myself. So you see some great coaches that got awesome technical ability in the lifts. But again, sometimes they go through a lot of finite points of, of a clean. And these athletes are still sort of very early in their lifting career. That amount of information I sometimes see is just way too much for the athlete. So they don't seem to really get anywhere too far. Um, so I think, and one of the, the great things, I suppose, growing up um, with Dan Baker being sort of the powerlifting coach at UQ and helping me in some competitions, he just used a couple of single syllable cues that we all understood. So something like eyes, um, the bar went back above the eyes in the bench press. Uh, so if he yelled at eyes, that meant the bar was traveling, traveling maybe too vertically. It needed to go back to your eyes. If there was something like, um, I think he used the word chest in the squat and deadlift, that just meant you're caving in a little bit. You needed to stick your chest up again. So doing a heavy squat or a deadlift, that one syllable cue 
uh, was quick enough that you could actually perceive that information, you could hear it, you could then assimilate what that meant and then change your action based on it. So again, that's a simple example of that perception action couple in practice as well. So anyone that Dan coached in the UQ weightlifting club or at the Broncos, they would have heard those cues. I don't know how many times throughout their career, but every time you heard it, you um, stood to attention. You changed your technique based on that cue. And as you get better and better, uh, you don't need that cue as often because you are so self-aware of your body's position. So if you can do that in the gym, that they then basically can coach themselves, it's more likely that'll then transfer to the field. So again, one of those rugby league players at the Broncos can transfer that force into a, a tackle situation or a running over the top of their opponent situation. Mm-hmm. Look, I really liked how you, uh, how you redirected that how do you feel question because a lot of times you'll ask how do you feel and the, the athlete will say, yeah, good. Pretty good. It was good. Yeah. And you're like, um, we weren't really getting what I, was, what I was looking for there. Yeah. And that's the thing. Every athlete's different. So, um, so again, you've got to, I think one of the big things is, um, and something I've started to learn from some people that are now working women's sport a lot too, that relationships are really important. Um, and again, we don't want to generalize over um, or oversimplify things, but it seems that more female athletes want to have some degree of um, personal relationship in terms of understanding where you come from, your background, but also understanding and asking more questions about why. Why are we doing this exercise? Um, and I think some of these female athletes, because of that, that greater investment they have in the process, may actually understand their body movements faster than a lot of the, the male athletes, particularly in that adolescent space where perhaps um, us guys don't quite mentally mature as quickly as the ladies do either. So um, I think in terms of um, getting them to be comfortable in the feedback that you're providing, why you're doing the exercise, and those cues is a, a really important part of, um, of being a good strength coach because if you can't coach, well, you're not called a strength and conditioning coach for, for no reason. Mm. It's not just writing a program, um, having the best periodization model, the most specific exercises that have the greatest force and power outputs. Unless you can coach it well and your athletes buy into that program, do it every time they go into the gym, um, work as hard as you want them to work on it. You might as well just give them leg extensions and bicep curls. Sure, sure. No, that, that's so true. That's so true. Uh, you've talked about needs analysis. So this, this, we talked about the reaction time and the yep. or reacting to stimulus in the gym and, and how that might apply into, into the sports. Um, I know a big area of interest for you is this needs analysis in sports or even notational analysis uh, yeah. and how it's being applied in a lot of the team sports. Can you tell us about that? Can you tell us how, how people use it, what, what's their application to the sports yeah. and then what can the S&C coach or, or any coach take from it? Yeah, I think um, needs analysis has always been something we've done, like in S&C. The Essential Strength and Conditioning book have their sort of um, needs analysis section in there. Um, we do that through our undergrad programs. The fitness industry does it. It's like what muscles are involved, how are they moving, what sequence of activation might there be. And I think that's still really important. But at the end of the day, I think we need to go back to the overarching question. Um, and something, if you ask a bunch of like, like again, um, a bunch of nine or 10-year-olds who like a particular sport. How do you win that game? Be it basketball, AFL, netball, rugby league. 
and they'll just look at you and go, you score more points than the opposition. Simple. So I think as a strength coach, we need to go back to that simplicity. If it's a team sport where we're scoring more points than the opposition, how do we maximize our potential to score points? How do we minimize the opposition's potential to score points? So that then starts you down the needs analysis route of how important, like Mike Stone had a great paper, God, I'm not sure if it's 10 years ago, how strong is enough, I think it was titled. And again, for a sport like strongman, you're never strong enough. But for almost every other sport, there's sort of a threshold at which you're strong, you're fast, you're fit, whatever that threshold is. To go beyond that is going to take a ridiculous amount of training, is probably going to increase the risk of injury, and you're going to be, I suppose, under-training other things that are going to be more important for your development. So you then bring in the notational analysis. Um, there's been some great studies. Um, Carl Woods, who's with Port um, Power um, in the AFL, Sam Robinson at VicU and the Bulldogs have done a range of this research, um, plus some of their colleagues now with AFL, with National Rugby League, and also with, um, with netball as well. So these studies, just looking at the game statistics that anyone who loves watching those, those sports get, and they're seeing these evolutionary trends in some of those um, key performance indicators. So as an example, in the AFL, the paper they did went from 2015, sorry, 2001 to 2015. So this notational analysis of what happens in the game. Um, some of the key things were the efficiency of the disposals, the kicks and handballs had declined in those 15 years. The number of tackles had gone up dramatically and the number of kicks and handballs had increased as well. So you think about how AFL's changed in those 15 or so years. Strength conditioning is a massive part of those, that game now. These athletes are pr still pretty big athletes, but they move really well in terms of their speed and their fitness. So that whole thing in the media at the moment about the congestion, partly that's due to the fact that these players are faster, they're fitter, and they're more accountable to get to those um, contest situations. And as a consequence... Um, you then have to get rid of the ball quicker. So you've got to kick and handball more often. The more times you do that under pressure, there's more tackles and there's a reduction in the efficiency of those kicks and handballs. So that relatively simple analysis of um, what's happened in 15 years has partly been driven by strength and conditioning, but it also then has strength and conditioning applications as well. Another paper I found really interesting, again, I use with my students, was a paper by Wheeler um, that involved Keith Lyons, who's one of the sort of the gurus of notational analysis from the UK. He looked at the National Rugby League um, paper probably about six, seven years ago, and he found that the top four teams differed dramatically to the other um, teams in the competition, particularly the bottom four, in how well they offloaded in the contact situation. Um, and the outcome of those offloads. So the top four teams when they offloaded invariably made line breaks and a good proportion of those line breaks led to tries. The bottom four teams in particular, when they tried to offload, they generally turned the ball over. They then looked at some of the characteristics from a biomechanical perspective that may um, relate to those outcomes. So again, the top teams when they um, did the offload were typically going over the advantage line. They remained on two feet. Um, so again, some of those things that you can coach and develop um, as a strength coach and a skills coach um, come together in a simple statistic like the offload 
So, and if you think of the fullbacks that have developed in that time, you've got obviously perhaps one of the best fullbacks of all time, probably the catalyst, someone like Billy Slater. How many off breaks, how many line breaks, sorry, off breaks, he's not a spin bowler. How many line breaks has he had throughout his career where he's just followed through one of their big forwards, be it for Melbourne, Queensland or Australia, they've offloaded and he's raced through a gap. Um, he scored a try himself or set it up for the next support runner like Cameron Smith or Cooper Cronk. So simple studies like that, um, be it in the games or even in the small-sided game space where you might manipulate the field dimensions or the rules um, to get a certain physical training effect or a skill development um, effect. Um, you can, again, simply with, say, GPS, get all your running metrics that you can notate from that, but also what's happening in terms of a basketball player or a team that might be great at three-point shooting, but you want them to be more comfortable driving to the basket, how you can manipulate their training to do so, but then also quantify, as you would in the weights room or on the running track, quantify how they're technically progressing over the course of that year. And Damien Farrow and Sam Robinson had an awesome paper in Sport Medicine last year um, entitled A Skill Acquisition Framework Development, um, something along those lines, sorry, Skill Acquisition Framework, uh, where they've put our theories of periodization of physical prep into that skill acquisition um, space as well. So again, if that can be integrated within the overall program, um, you look at the great teams that have been at a high level for many years, go back into NZ, I, th I think the Crusaders are probably a team to, to look at in a lot of our team sports, how they've been successful for so long. It'd be really interesting to see how they integrate their skills and physical training together so those athletes are excelling at all parts of the game. Mm, yeah, definitely, 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 and it's it's a it's a way of just quantifying those coaching decisions too, and uh, and it really makes me think. There was a one person we had on the podcast just recently, Bob Alejo, who was the SNC coach for the Oakland A's back in the Moneyball era, and his yep. his whole paradigm was let's reverse engineer from what um, we want to do, which is get people on base. Um, that was their major sort of t t statistic. How do yep. you get on base? Um, you either get walks or you get runs. Exactly. You know I mean? And I think strength coach, sports scientist, whatever the term is going to be, we have to think like that. Like even though I've loved strongman, if I work in a particular sport, um, say if I got offered a job in tennis, God forbid why tennis would offer me a job. But if they did, um, if I went into the mindset of whacking in a whole range of strongman exercises, the question would have to be asked to me, how is that going to make them a better tennis player? Mm -hmm. um, and again, do the Olympic lifts transfer to, to tennis? Um, do, how do plyometrics do so? So regardless of where your background comes from, again, that's one of your strengths. But when you do that needs analysis, you look at the physical demands plus the technical and the tactical, how may that or may, how may or may not that have any real place in that sport? Yeah, sure, sure. Look, well, Mate, I know Bernard Tomic and uh, Nick Curios are big-time listeners of this podcast. <laughs> you never know what might happen after this. Um, sure. <laughs> um, what is, uh, what, how, how, do you, how do you interact with the technical coach then? How does that fit in? Like, or what would you say would be the best practice way of fitting in with the technical coach's plans around that? 
Uh, yeah, that's, that's a great question. One thing, again, I think comes back to relationships. Um, so it's not just the strength coach with the athletes, it's the strength coach with the wider support team, the head coach as well. So I think um, before you take on a job, um, if you're offered a job, if you're lucky to be offered a job, um, or when you're applying, you've really got to have an idea of what that head coach sees as the sort of philosophy for the team, the organization. So where do they see the strength coach assisting in that sport? So we can definitely help educate coaches um, and that's a part of it, but you really need to see where they believe it can be important to start with. Um, Take what you can from that and again, educate them where they need to. So again, if an AFL team wants to play a, a very structured possession game, compared to more a freewheeling running type game, um, that is going to have some implications to perhaps the type of players they need to recruit, plus your emphasis of strength and power work versus aerobic running performance. It also dictates the skills that the players have to have as well. So I think AFL is a great sport in terms of how it can work, whereby these athletes run huge amounts in a training session. So you've got that physical running demand based just on the dimension of the field, but they can also execute a lot of decisions, a lot of kicks and handballs, marking contests, particularly if we start to look at some of those small-sided game options to a point whereby we can, like a handball-type drill where you might have five-on-five in a space of 15 by 15 metres is a very close approximation of what happens at every um, ball-up or um, sort of clearance um, example. So those players who have to probably um, learn to execute skills under the greatest amount of pressure can really improve that part of their game with some of those small-sided games in training. They can do it for a small number of um, teammates. And at the same time, all of us who've done small-sided games know that that physical demand, if you go hard in those small-sided games, is as intense as any other part of training. So... um, how you can start to break parts of the game down into those aspects with small-sided games um, can be a big part of that process as well. But I think going back to it, understanding the sport from all those perspectives, talking to the coach, um, and if it's a big structure, all the assistant coaches as well, so that um, all those different sort of demands of the different positions plus Again, maybe that developmental athlete, say in the AFL, who's might be six foot four, but weighs like 75 kilos, um, who might be going up against 100 kilo men in the near future. How do you get their physical size and strength to a point they're not just going to be snapped in two, um, but still allowing their technical development and their sort of running development to occur concurrently? So that's the big challenge. But if you've got the coach on board, you can monitor some of these running metrics easily with GPS at top level. Also, if you can monitor some of those skill executions to some extent, um, Sports Code does a good job of that, but it's a little bit time intensive for the sports scientist. Assisting with that sort of quantitative data for the coach in terms of what's happening on the field, I think is an important process um, whereby I think a sports will definitely benefit from quantifying that technical execution on the field. So again, they're progressing and periodizing that technical development under more and more game-like pressure type situations. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like yeah. even I can kick the ball and hit targets 25, 30 metres away when we're just standing still. Yeah. But if you put me in an AFL game, I'm not going to get a kick away before I get smashed by someone. Yeah. Um, so how do we, again, maximise that transfer and progressively challenge them in situations where they have less and less time to make decisions and execute the skill effectively? Sure, sure. It's, uh, it's really common to hear people, people remark when they're watching a game on footy, like say rugby league, rugby union, I'll give an example, is that a player might drop an easy pass or something like that and people are like, oh, look, they're professional footballers, they should be up to catching pass, it's not a yep. big deal. But if your heart rate's been at 150 to 180 for the last five minutes, simple things yep. like that actually become really, really hard to do and uh, it's part of, I guess, the S&C's job to help bridge that gap. Um, and even sometimes like we go back to cues and sort of feedback sometimes we've all had the coach who said all right um we want to do this drill for one more minute with no mistakes or for a certain period of time no mistakes what typically happens we all regress back to the simpler activities we go back to what we can easily perform but again if you want to beat the all blacks you're not going to beat them by playing simple basic rugby you've got to take some type of risks to challenge that defensive line to put them under pressure so they make mistakes. Um, so unless you can do that, um, execute those challenging skills under that degree of pressure, um, you're not going to challenge a team of that sort of skill and physical ability. So um, the challenge, again, is sometimes the words that we use in coaching, be it in the gym or on the field, make us revert back to a simpler basic sort of level of technique and tactic that is never going to allow us to beat the best teams in the world. Sure, sure, 100%. And if it's a World Cup final, you're already there, you've already got second place, it's at that point that you can definitely take that risk. And even if it doesn't pay off, you still get, you're still second. You weren't likely to beat them in the first place by playing conservative or playing them at all. So you've got to take some risks. And unless you've trained that sort of approach um, to execute under pressure, fatigue, the fact that you probably just got smashed 10 seconds before you're out of breath, you, your head's still ringing. Um, how are you likely to do that in the intense pressure cooker of a World Cup final? Yeah, for sure, Justin. Mate, it's, it's been awesome. So you've, you've, you've really illustrated a lot of really nice things today. I, I really like the, uh, the whole strongman, the, the, um, the powerlifting, the, the, what we can take from that, the, those tapering practices, the whole concentric, eccentric conundrum. I'm going to call it a conundrum for now. How are you going to fit it all together? And then all, all the skill yeah. acquisition, notational analysis, it's, it's been great. We're going to finish with a couple of little quickfire questions. Um, sure. The first one is going to be one-word answers. It doesn't matter, or you can elaborate on them. It's a, it's okay. a good choice. Um, what has been one talk or lecture you've gone to where you've been able to walk out of immediately and go, I can use that tomorrow. Wow. It'd be hard to put it just down to one. I think one that's still relatively recent in my mind uh, would be Carl Woods. He presented at the ACA conference a few years ago um, around some of his AFL PhD and particularly some of the stuff I've mentioned today. His PhD looked at how physical, technical and 
decision-making characteristics um, could distinguish the under-18 Western Australian Football League athletes who went on to get drafted. Um, while the physical data was pretty good, the combine tests that they use, the decision-making and the technical skills were even more important in distinguishing those athletes. So to a point, when we select that adolescent talent to go into the big stages, I think American footy is the same. They use this NFL combine, look at these physical fitness tests. To me, if you've got two athletes who are competing at a similar level, I would often perhaps go for the physically weaker athlete in that as a strength conditioning coach, we can make a pronounced change in their physical development. But changing their decision-making and tactical um, technical skills is probably a lot harder. So I think his sort of um, stuff there really influenced me. And as a consequence of that, we've started doing a whole range of research together. So I think, again, that interaction, even when we look at the ASCA course, they talk about physical preparation, tactical, psychological, and technical are all important parts of performance. They therefore need to be a part of the needs analysis. And while we focus on physical, if we can influence those other um, aspects of performance, um, ultimately that's going to improve our performance and that of the team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it reminds me of a, uh, I've hung out a bit with a guy called Tom Mayer, who was Australian women's basketball coach. He's, he's coached like five yep. different countries, um, including China. Um, but his, philosophy was if he had two girls of equal sort of ability and one was from the country and one was from the city, he was always going to pick the one from the country because guaranteed she had less exposure to sort of trainers and so on. So her ceiling was much higher than than the other girl. Exactly. Yep. Mate, next question. Next question. Um, This is one that uh, all S&C coaches love to brag about or love love to talk about when they're having a few beers. What's the best performance you've seen in a training environment where you've just gone, holy... Did I just witness that? Yeah, God. Again, it's probably been so many. Um, Like I suppose one of the biggest changes, even though it's probably not quite a highlight per se, but looking at some of the the younger adolescent golfers I worked with in New Zealand, who early on it was a big challenge to perhaps even get them to think about the importance of SNC. Um, and while the loads that they lifted weren't like in, no one's going to post it on the Instagram account and say the phrase I hate beast mode, but seeing the transition, some of these younger adolescent golfers into actually being proficient and lifting reasonable loads in the gym was, might be one of those, one of those sort of highlights of, again, a group of athletes who really had no traditional buy into a gym structure before several months later actually um, being good in the gym and a number who then went on to the tours then actually saying down the track how important that was because, again, they're off on their own. They, um, unless they become quite motivated themselves, they don't do it. And when they don't do it, their performance declines and their their sort of niggles and injuries um, continue to increase. So that might be slightly outside the square but perhaps one of those um those experiences that were really good most impressive yeah right uh next question number one gifted book or number one recommended book um a couple i'm looking at at the moment again that doesn't have to be snc can be anything yeah um 
Two to Bompers Six Periodization Edition is really cool. I've been reading through that as well as um, Ripito's um, Practical. Uh, what's it called? Um, starting Strength or something? Yeah, um, that's been really good to look at. A whole range of different models. Again, not every model I agree with, but again, it's like trying to get a rationale for those sort of things. Um, but sort of outside of that, um, again, just it's hard to probably pinpoint a book, but um, I think any book, like any sort of biography that you read on, on someone, be it an athlete, an artist, um, a scientist who's overcome adversity um, and um, risen to success in their field is, is always inspiring to me um, to demonstrate that hard work, perseverance, and that sort of willingness to learn and to develop um, is um, something that you can achieve. So like even my nine-year-old daughter at the moment, she's um, getting into jiu-jitsu. Um, she's now reading Ronda Rousey's biography. Yeah, right. Cool. Um, and again, it'd be great if she still was in the UFC and not doing WWE. But um, again, looking at that sort of book, the adversity that she went through in her life um, to then achieve everything that she, she did um, was, again, really inspirational. Again, for someone young like my daughter, who's really interested in starting like doing some competitions in jujitsu. She's only been practicing for about three months um, is sort of really cool to see that as um, something that might inspire some other girls. For sure. For sure. If somebody else has walked that path, it makes it a little bit easier for the next person to. Yep. hundred percent. Mate, um, it's been absolutely brilliant, Justin. Uh, how do people, Get more information. You've got your Twitter, which is Doctor Strength for Life at Doctor yep. Strength for Life. Um, yep. There's there's Bond University, and there's the sort of changes you've got to that master's program. Um, yeah, yep. well, there's also the ACA conference that. Uh, yeah, so um, I'll be at the ACA conference this year. So happy if this goes to um, online by then. Anyone have a chat there? Um, anyone who's interested in the research that we're doing, definitely jump on ResearchGate. Almost all the papers that um, our group publishes, I'll put full text versions on there. Um, like it can be the article itself if copyright allows. If not, it's the Word version that was accepted. So all the data, all the text is there, not just a 250-word abstract. So I think the biggest challenges for practitioners who aren't affiliated with uni, you can get charged $40 or something for an article, and God knows if I'd ever pay that. But Using something like ResearchGate for a practitioner, I think, is awesome. Um, really quickly, Hayden Pritchard, when he did that tapering narrative review a couple of years ago, um, the couple of weeks after he posted that article, after it got um, accepted and went online, I was getting over 2,000 downloads per week, and about 1,500 of them were for that one article. Wow. So... Um, and similarly, when Paul Winwood and I did the um, strength sports injury epidemiology paper a year ago in sport medicine, we had some similar statistics for a couple of weeks. Again, the amount of people you would think a lot of practitioners around the world who aren't with universities could then actually get that Word version of the paper, read through all the data that's um, in the full paper, but just not in the pretty sort of uh, published format. So... ResearchGate to me is a, an awesome opportunity to read research and I sort of use Twitter as a way to promote some of those articles um, to my followers and then I again can go straight to ResearchGate and, and read those papers that are of interest to them. Right on, right on. So uh, follow Justin on Twitter, Dr. Strength for Life and uh, make sure you check out his ResearchGate. 
And uh, if you are interested, I'm sure there's everything's up there for you. All right, mate. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. Hey, team. Look, thank you so much for listening. Before I go, we've got to mention the ACA. They do so much for strength and conditioning coaches uh, in Australasia and, and around the world. We've got a great conference. Uh, Justin, like I mentioned, was a speaker at that conference. We've got journals, uh, professional development, the special institute. Interest groups have been going gangbusters lately. It's up in Brisbane, they're on the Gold Coast, they're in Perth, they're everywhere. Um, got to mention Val Performance as well. Wonderful support of the ACA and this podcast. Make sure you check them out. Uh, well worth your time if you're interested in injury prevention, athletic performance, all those types of things. They're, they're, all their products are right on the money. So, look, we'll be back next episode with more from another superstar in the industry. I'll guarantee you, don't you don't want to miss it. Anyway, until next time, I'm Joseph Coyne. This is the ACA Podcast. Thank you.